0: Hello, my name's James Bagley
1: and I'm Lucy Chaw
0: and this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. Another week of lockdown and another episode from the team here at King's. As I know so many of you are listening in lockdown, we hope you're staying safe and well and as a listener to this podcast you'll know that each week we help explore some of the challenges we face by talking to an expert guest about their work. We hope these conversations can be interesting and insightful, helping break down often complicated issues and perhaps even helping us understand some of the solutions. We hope you enjoy them and we want to say a big thank you to all our listeners both here in the UK and around the world for your feedback and comments. Please do rate, review and subscribe, it helps us reach more people. We started this podcast at a time when we faced perhaps the biggest collective health challenge in a generation. But it's also been a deeply personal challenge for many, one that has tested our mental as well as our physical health. In these last two weeks, we've aimed to explore the impacts of the pandemic on our mental health. And in today's episode, we speak with Dr Gemma Knowles about the impacts of the pandemic on adolescent mental health, the underlying drivers of mental health amongst young people, as well as the work being done to understand the challenges young people face and critically how we can support them. Importantly, we also speak about the challenges faced by parents and teachers trying to support young people in what is, of course, an incredibly tough time. And I should say there are links in our show notes to organisations and services that can support you if you've been affected by anything we discuss in today's episode. Of course, Gemma is part of the Centre for Society and Mental Health here at King's. And before today's episode, I got to have a quick chat with friend of the podcast and co-director of the centre, Professor Craig Morgan. I started by asking Craig what the centre aims to achieve.
2: So we established the centre around about a year ago. It's funded by the UK Economic and Social Research Council. And its primary purpose is to try to understand something more about the impacts of rapid social change on mental health. And so it's set up against a context over the past 10, 20, 30 years or more of really quite far-reaching social changes, um, changes in personal social economic life, changes that have had impacts across the board, including, for example, on interpersonal relationships, the rise uh, of social media, on work and welfare, with the rise of the Uh, gig economy and zero hours contracts and increased uncertainty and precarity at work and in relation to welfare benefits and alongside that a sense that mental health problems at least in some groups in in society have been increasing and so the the centre is really trying to understand what is the relationship between these uh, social changes and mental health and very much with a view to what can we do what can we do in these changing and challenging contexts and circumstances which are much more so now in the context of COVID, what can we do in those uh, contexts to promote and support people's mental health?
0: Yeah, and it's been amazing to hear some of the work being done, some of which is discussed in these episodes by colleagues at the centre. Even during this, this pandemic, in many ways, they've, they've upped their workload and, and been trying to support and understand uh, the impacts of lockdown. What, what are some of the things we can look forward to in the
2: coming uh, months and, and perhaps year? The centre's, I think, developed its activities really uh, quite quickly, which is, is a testament to the work that everyone involved in the centre is doing. We have programmes of research in three areas in relation to young people, mental health, in relation to marginalised communities and mental health, and in relation to work and welfare. And I can give some illustrations from across these programmes of the work that we're doing and that people might uh, expect and, and look forward to. So, for example, in relation to young people, We've been doing some work uh, supported by additional funding from the uh, UK research councils, some additional work to look at the impacts of COVID-19 and related social restrictions and school closures and so on on the mental health of young people following a cohort over this transition period, this period of of change as a consequence of COVID to, to see what the impacts are. And we're hoping that the findings from that project will be available very soon Related to that, we're working with the Emerging Minds Network to uh, run a conference in early March, which will aim to bring together the current evidence that there is in relation to the impacts of COVID-19 on uh, the mental health of young people. And that will feed into a policy lab that we're running with the Policy Institute at King's um, to produce essentially a policy briefing that will set out concrete policies for what can be done to support young people uh, through these challenging times. There's work ongoing, for example, in our uh, marginalised communities programme, attempting to look at and understand more the impacts uh, of discrimination, disadvantage and so on in in communities and the impacts of that on mental mental health. And a final thing possibly to note is that Towards the end of, of March, so this is really talking about the first few months of this year, towards the end of March, the, conf- the, the Centre will have its first annual conference, um, which will bring together people who work with the Centre, external partners um, and so on, to, to, to explore many of these kinds of themes um, and, to, and to showcase the work of the, of the Centre. So in, in the short term, I think they're the kinds of activities that the, that the Centre is, is doing.
0: A big thank you to Craig for coming on. You can find out more about some of the research he spoke about and more about the centre by heading to their website. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow them on Twitter at KCSAMH. So it just leaves me to introduce today's episode. This is Adolescent Mental Health in a Time of Covid with Dr Gemma Knowles. Dr Gemma Knowles, welcome to the World We Got This podcast.
1: Hi James, thanks very much for having me on.
0: Firstly, um, we're in lockdown free. How are you holding up? How are you doing?
1: Yeah, all good really. No reason to complain. Um, I think I've been relatively uh, unimpacted by COVID and those lockdowns and so on compared to many other people. Obviously in a stable job, stable income, lots of parts in my area. Um, so yeah, nothing to complain about really.
0: Yeah, having a park nearby is certainly a massive bonus and um, and it was sunny today so it was a bit of bit of brightness. Um, I got out at lunch and it, it was really helpful actually. I think um, the last few weeks have been a bit cloudy and I don't think that's helped everyone. Um, it's certainly certainly nice to see the sun. So today we're going to be talking about adolescent mental health and the mental health of young people as well as how that impacts on those that work with young people, whether that's teachers, carers and, of course, parents. But before we do and before we talk about that challenge, um, which is which was relevant before COVID-19, but has certainly become more of a priority during this lockdown, we always like to find out more about our guests and how they came to work on this this issue or piece of research. So you currently work on the REACH study, but before then you had a different career, varied interests. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to work on this issue?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I I actually started out in sports science, uh, did my degree in sports science. um, And for a while was convinced I'd gone to be a PE teacher um, as a sport lover and uh, I enjoy working with young people. Um, Realised then that actually teaching is a really challenging profession, changed direction, uh, got into the research world. And since then, I've been working in school-based research, uh, looking at health inequalities among young people and the things that drive those inequalities. And I guess I'm just generally interested in trying to work out what we can do to try to create a more level playing field for young people, not just in terms of then influencing our health outcomes, but also other outcomes across the life course.
0: And and the REACH study, uh, we don't normally start with the research or, or the study process because I uh, often I guess listeners uh, might not be so across the details of how we do research but I think the in the case of REACH it actually helps kind of map what the issue and kind of understand some of the complexities of it so kind of how does it work how did it come about and and so sort of what, what are its aims I guess?
1: Yeah okay so so REACH is um, it's a, a cohort study of adolescent mental health and um, this basically just means that what we're doing is working with a large group of young people um, and these young people are all based in state schools in inner city London. And we're, we're working with these young people to try to look at how their mental health develops over time through adolescence um, and looking at what the kind of factors are that influence their risk of developing um, a mental health problem um, as they grow up. Um, and, and importantly, we're, we're interested in the things that are protective for mental health among young people. And the, the reason Reach came about is was a few reasons really. I guess I guess one of the reasons is that I guess what we know about adult mental health is first that most uh, most mental health problems actually first emerge during childhood and adolescence. So we need to learn more about the protective factors, you know, what the areas that we can intervene to try to protect mental health among young people. The other thing is that a lot of what we know about adolescent mental health in the UK is based on studies of nationally representative samples so basically um collecting information from large groups of young people who represent the average for england or for the uk um and um, and although those things are those those studies are really valuable they do serve a purpose they can tell us about the state of play nationally they they're not really well equipped to then look at variations by subgroup and region and so on um, and of course We know that mental health is um, strongly connected to our social circumstances and experience while we're growing up, and context matters. So the experience of young people living in, say, coastal towns versus in the city of London versus the national average are going to be quite different. And uh, and we we strongly feel that a localized approach and local research is is really important for informing uh, interventions and so on for young people's mental health.
0: And I guess that that I mean that brings me on to think about. This issue more broadly, and what's driving it, and and just and just the scale of it. So, I guess for outsiders and non-experts, it does feel as if uh, we hear more and more that young people are facing pressures like never before, and that young people are presenting with uh, mental health conditions, perhaps at an earlier age, or or confronting these these issues that maybe perhaps it, uh, pre- previous generations didn't or hadn't come across. Is that the case? Uh, are young people uh, facing mental health challenges that the previous generations didn't?
1: Yeah, so there's quite a bit of research emerging on, on this topic, and I think the broad picture is that overall, um, there does seem to be an increase in the uh, the prevalence of how common mental health problems are among young people over the last ten to twenty years. But if you dig a bit deeper into the numbers, it's quite interesting to see that this isn't always the case for, for all groups of young people or for all types of mental health problems. It seems like the most consistent observation is that anxiety and depression among young girls or young women, so those in the kind of 16 to 24 age group, that's where we've seen the biggest increases. Um, and oh, that's most consistently found. But if you look at other areas, say uh, things like behavioural problems, or uh, if we think about boys' mental health and so on, the evidence there around ch- um, changes over time is a bit less consistent. Um, so I, I think that's that's quite interesting, and it, it does mean that I think a lot of the attention um, in young people's mental health research at the moment is geared towards anxiety, depression, and girls and women.
0: And, and you mentioned that the REACH study looks or aims to look at both local and diverse factors involved in adolescent mental health. I mean, are there particular aspects that the study aims to look at, so for example, perhaps racism or the challenges around living in an isolated community or the impacts of uh, homophobia and things like that, and, and, and does the study try to look at some of those factors and their impacts on, on young people?
1: Yeah, so I guess what, what makes um, REACH a bit different from the, the national um, cohorts that are out there is the diversity of the young people that are taking part. I mean, the, so the people that are taking part in, in REACH um, are representative of young people in Lambeth and Southwark, a really, really diverse boroughs, high levels of social inequality, high levels of um, ethnic and racial diversity and so on. Um, and, and so we're, we're, the things that we're focusing on are, are the things that we think will um, have an influence on mental health among young people living in this context. But of course, you know, some, some drivers of mental health are consistent across contexts um, and some are more specific to different areas. For us, what we're really interested in is we're trying to capture information about difficult social circumstances and experiences that young people might have while they're growing up. And um, so things like growing up in poverty. Experiences of discrimination, racism and so on, how they feel about their school environment, their home environment, their um, peer and family support networks, um, their neighbourhood, things like crime and so on. And then what what we're interested in also is looking at the protective factors that might offset any negative impacts of those difficult circumstances and experiences. So, for example, things like peer support networks and social support, which um, are generally seem to be protective for mental health, even in the face of difficulties.
0: And, And one thing that certainly it can feel comes up often in this conversation is social media and both the benefits and the challenges that it poses for young people and their mental health. I mean certainly I grew up I think social I'm trying to think when Facebook <laughs> launched <a bit laughs> and its relationship with my my schooling years but it was I think it was sixth form I was uh, Facebook accounts were st- were starting to become a thing so it certainly d- I didn't have anything like Instagram or Snapchat to deal with but it, it, the thing that strikes me is always that I do not know how young people kind of navigate those things because they're difficult enough for for adults so do we see that as a, as a, as a big issue? And is that, is that something that you look at in the research?
1: Well, in REACH initially, we, we, we collected a bit of information about young people's use of social media. Uh, we've added more along the way. But there are other emerging studies that are looking at the impact of social media on young people's mental health. And the, I think the, the overall picture is that, well, first, there are, there are big limitations to the quality of the evidence that we have around social media and young people's mental health. The studies that are out there suggest that there are a combination of positive impacts and negative impacts on young people's well-being and mental health. And they've started to have a look into some of the mechanisms that might underlie those outcomes. But generally, a lot of this research is... Cross sectional, which means basically that we're looking at um, a snapshot of what's going on at one point in time. Um, And so it's difficult to draw from that any confirmation of uh, what came first. So it could be that young people who are struggling with their mental health already are more likely to use social media in a different way or to a greater extent than those who aren't struggling with their mental health. But vice versa, it could also be that um, it's the engagement with social media, whether it's the extent and nature of how they're using it, that then influences their mental health. And there's some evidence for gender differences in this as well. So some evidence that it's young girls, again, that are more impacted by social media in terms of mental health outcomes. But again, caveat with limitations to the evidence. I think another big limitation is that academic research moves really slowly. Social media world moves very quickly. The ways in which young people use social media and digital te- technologies, the different platforms that they're using, and so on—they're um, always changing. Um, and there's a big issue around how we measure young people's use of social media, because a lot of the evidence that's out there is based on crude measures of kind of how many hours per day do you spend on social media, for example, which doesn't really tell us much about. There are very big differences, lots of variation in how young people use social. Media. Some people use it as a really positive outlet to express themselves and for creativity and for social connection with friends and so on, um, and others perhaps less less so. And so I think the the nature and not just the kind of extent to which they're using social media is. is probably quite important um and but but it's a very difficult thing to measure i suspect that our generation of researchers just isn't well equipped enough we don't understand the online world as well as young people do any research that is done in this area i think it has to be shaped by young people they really need to be at the heart of it and driving it forward and um, because they know it much better than we do
0: yeah that's a really fascinating point because i think when we we've spoken to guests before about other issues in relation to the internet and what's so striking is it's so often, the experts or the policymakers, the politicians are talking on issues that they understand less than their, their children who are perhaps at secondary school. You know, they're actually the people that we need to talk to when we're understanding how people use these, these devices and their impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, for me personally, I think this is the case for a lot of research about young people because things are changing quickly um, and they are the experts of their own lives. I think a lot of researchers try to involve young people in their research, but it's often done in a bit of a tokenistic way. I think there's there are ways to really meaningfully involve young people in the whole research process. And our own experience is that it makes the research much better. And, and I think we're going to talk a bit later about some of the research we're doing at the moment on the impact of covid and social restrictions on young people the work that we've done it wouldn't have been we wouldn't have got it right without young people's involvement and they know what's going on we're detached from it we make our best guess but they can point us in the right direction
0: and just on that i mean has that been an exciting part of the research to 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 be working directly with young people and it sounds like in a kind of in a same sort of unique way in that they're very much involved in in the research development
1: Absolutely, I, I like. I think. I think probably everybody in our team would say that that's the bit that they love the most. It's it's really been fantastic to see the extent to which young people want to get involved in the research, um, and not just as a participant, but getting involved in things like our advisory group. We have a group of young people who we meet with regularly to advise us on how we do our research. Young people who have been doing online work experience placements with us. Um, through the pandemic, um, I think we've done that with around 200 young people so far. Um, and, and each of those t- placements, the, the input from young people is really fantastic. I think their contributions and what they can bring to research are really underestimated um, and understated. And a lot more could be done in this area. Um, but it does need to be meaningful and tokenistic because asking young people to give their opinion on something and then not acting on it doesn't work and disengages them um and this isn't to say that i think we've got it right along the way you know i think we've we've definitely improved the way that we involve young people in research and um, we learn as we go and it certainly hasn't been you know always that things have been we've been doing things to the best that we could do them and um, but i think we're i think we're getting there
0: generation z they're kind of uh they're whole new <laughs> Absolutely. a whole new a whole new kind of attitude to the world which is uh might save us that's good it's good to see yeah for sure. Uh, Young
1: young people have been getting a really war deal in the the media and the general press and so on um, during COVID. And I I really, yeah, I just, if I can have the opportunity to just say that I think young people are are, are brilliant. I think there's so much creativity and knowledge among them. Um, I think society could do more to really learn from them and to involve them in in decision making and so on. And I think it's, uh, yeah, like I say, a bit unfair the negative attention that they've had um, throughout COVID.
0: So we're going to go on to talk a little bit about COVID, some some uh, particular research as well that, that that you and the team have been doing and, and also the impacts on teachers. But I guess I just wanted to ask briefly and just to talk about the current situation for mental health provision for young people in the UK, the kinds of supports that are available, but also perhaps some of the things that we think, we need to increase or look at doing, or kind of things that other countries are doing that could help uh, our situation?
1: I work in epidemiology, so I work in mainly kind of community based and population based studies and less on the kind of clinical support angle. Um, but just, just to say a little bit on that. Um, so There has been for for quite a while a really big gap in the provision of child and adolescent mental health services compared to the demand. Um, So a a lot of young people who do need some support don't get it. And this is, I think, partially due to lack of resource and and so on um, in child and adolescent mental health services, barriers to accessing services among some groups of young people. And, and also the kind of the threshold that you need to be at to get that kind of help when we're talking about clinical services. So just thinking about God knows how many conversations I've had with school teachers over the years about when, when they try to make referrals to child and adolescent mental health services, they most often get rejected because services are too busy, they're already overloaded and so on, or because essentially young people have to get to crisis point before they are eligible to receive those services. And so what we, we end up with is um, a situation where schools are trying to manage not just low levels of distress uh, among their pupils, but also more serious, uh, you know, more severe levels of distress and mental health problems. Um, and, and schools aren't really equipped to do that. They don't want change to do that. And they don't feel they have the resources and the confidence and backing to do that. But they try to refer and they don't get anywhere with it. And it, so there's a, there's a big gap there. I think that takes us to talking about the kinds of services that and supports that are available through schools. Now, I think it'll probably come through this whole interview that I'm a massive fan of teachers and the old school staff and what they do. I think they're absolute heroes. You know, schools are first and foremost certified education, and there's a lot of variation across schools in the nature and the extent of resource that they have around supporting young people's mental health. So just anecdotally, from my experience working with schools in London, some of the schools have two counsellors, an educational psychologist, a drama therapist and an art therapist. And you go into another school that's half a mile down the road and they have nothing. And so the, the variation is, is quite stark between them. Some schools really just don't know what to do when it comes to helping young people who are really struggling with their mental health. There's a lot of literature out there on a lot of research that's happening on um, school-based interventions to support young people's mental health. These range from like universal or whole school approaches to mental health and well being, So things like, for example, trying to improve mental health awareness and literacy among young people, um, working on coping skills and mindfulness and those kinds of things, CBT, and then more targeted approaches that really just try to work with those who are, or either already have existing problems or are at high risk of developing problems. And the, the, I think the evidence here is just really quite mixed. So it seems that the broad brush picture, I think, is that some interventions, school based interventions for youth mental health may have small to moderate short term impacts. So you see some benefits in the short term, but then the evidence around longer term impacts is much weaker. Generally, it's found that those benefits are only seen for, like say, they're small in, in, in size and they don't last very long. And this may in part be due to the fact that the sustainability of interventions in schools can be a challenge We're working with teachers and staff who are already stretched and working at capacity, so asking them to take on and run with these interventions if they're not kind of delivered by external people, it's a big challenge. And so that's one part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is that A lot of the the focus of many of these school based interventions is on a kind of like psychological aspects. So, trying to, as I said, things like CBT and mindfulness and mental health awareness and so on that try to help students to cope or to to cope better with difficulties. But the problem there is that it's not really a sticking plaster approach, but it doesn't cover the whole picture. And if the root cause of distress among young people is you know, difficult social circumstances difficult home lives and so on then it's not surprising that something like mindfulness will only have a limited and short-term impact because we are not addressing the, the cause the root problem so I, I think that's you know I think one way that we can try to go with research is try to do better on addressing the social issues that underlie mental health problems at least from a group or population level
0: I mean, that sounds like it's really important then to understand the how these things are interconnected. Poverty with mental health, physical environment. There is also clinical things going on here, but also that there are these social factors that researchers are trying to understand but that also that schools should be supported with. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think we need to not forget that that you know schools are embedded within communities, and if there are significant social challenges in, in those communities, disadvantages and so on, then you know it, it's difficult for a school to be the institution that takes on that burden and tries to do something with it. And so I think greater attention to addressing underlying social inequalities and disadvantages could have an you know an impact at the population level and um and, and really you know start to get some way to, to making an impact.
0: Yeah it's it's kind of incredible to think about how schools are really the first place that see a whole multitude of challenges. Teachers are the people that see hunger, they see mental health challenges, they see health challenges. They, these are the people the first non-family member that might have come into contact with them and I guess we sometimes forget that and, and what that might the impact on teachers of that I guess.
1: Yeah definitely I, th- I think the um like the school schools provide a range of services it's yes it's first and foremost education but the reality of it is that schools are the the main route through to social services and to physical and mental health services and and often the, the you know they know the family better than any other services that are out there so there's a lot of burden on schools um, and I've got to say you know the the people that are doing this in schools are, as I say, are brilliant. You know, we've seen some brilliant things and met some brilliant people along the way in our research. They really do give it their all and always have the kids' well being at the forefront of everything that they do. I guess you know we've had decades now. I think of reduced investment in local community services. So you know things like Sure Start and so on, the other services that were available in the community that, that contributed to a, to addressing some of these issues. And as those things have declined, I think there's been additional burden placed on schools. It's a difficult time and um, there's a lot of pressure on them. I think.
0: Obviously, this is a long term issue and challenge which has been long in the making. And we've talked about some of the ways in which it has got worse and and what might be driving it. But also you've been doing some research in relation in particular to COVID-19, the lockdown and its impacts. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research?
1: Yeah, cool. So so I I mentioned Reach earlier, we've been working with this group of around 4,000 young people from mainstream schools in in inner-city London. And before the pandemic hit, we had, with this group of young people, collected information at three time points, um, so roughly 2016 to 2017 2017 to 2018 and 2018 to 2019 Um, and this is the same group of young people being followed over time we're asking them questions about their mental health and about these social circumstances and and factors that we think uh, might increase or reduce their risk of developing a mental health problem Um, and so when the pandemic hit we were one of I think few research groups in the in the UK that had that kind of longitudinal data in the run-up to the pandemic and really close to the start of the pandemic. So we we started then going back to these young people in uh, May to August last year um, and inviting them to complete an online questionnaire um, about how things have been for them since the pandemic hit. Again, we were looking at things like mental health, using the same measures that we'd used in the run-up to the pandemic, And also questions about their family circumstances, their friendships, their their, um, schooling and so on, changes in household income. Um, and so we, we now have kind of four points of data on this same group of young people. And it allows us to look at whether things have changed markedly as a, you know, I, I want to say as a result of the pandemic, it's difficult to really pinpoint and you know, say that it's attributable to the pandemic. But because we have three time points immediately in the run up to the pandemic, then if we did see any massive changes this year, uh, sorry, last summer. Then um, you know, it, it perhaps hints that it's, it's to do with the pandemic and the school closures and the social restrictions and so
0: on. Yeah, and I guess that's going to be really critical to understanding the long term impacts on young people. We've heard about the long term impacts of being off school and we know that that's important to have children back, but also the the long term impacts on their mental health
1: yeah definitely i think we've we've been analyzing some of the data that we, we that we've been collecting during covid um and the i think the broad picture is that in the early phase of the pandemic there wasn't really any evidence to suggest that there'd been an increase in the proportion of young people that were struggling with their mental health but there's there's some complexity underlying that because yeah, I think what we're generally seeing is that a lot of young people reported many positives to the first phase of the pandemic. So you know, that initial novelty of having more time to yourself, being able to do more of the things that you enjoy doing. It was the summertime. Um, I don't think the, the ramifications of missing out on so much education had really hit and so on. And so we what we have is a picture where a lot of young people report lots of positive aspects. Don't see that spike in mental health problems that many people might have expected to see. But of course, there's a lot of individual variation in that. And um, so there will be some groups of young people who are really struggling, but because when you look at these kind of averages, it, it averages out if some people are doing well and some people aren't doing well, you see no change overall. It, there's definitely some complexity beyond that. And, and absolutely, we think things will change change over time. Uh, this this the data I was just referring to. They cover kind of May to August last year, so before schools properly reopened to most pupils. Um, and the, we've put these. We've been talking to young people who work on our study about kind of interpreting those findings, and their input's been really, really interesting. Uh, they're, in short, they were not surprised that we didn't see a spike. They know that many of their friends had lots of positives to that first phase, but their their key messages message to us. Is don't assume that this will continue to be the case. Novelty is worn off. Young people have realised that the ramifications of how much education they've missed could be really quite catastrophic and um, and long term. Actually, the, the thing that hit hit me hardest, I think, from talking to the to these young people, was that, as one person put it, you spend your whole life in education being told that if you miss one lesson, you're never going to catch up. So don't skive. And then they miss six months of education, and they're expected to try to catch up. So yeah, that really hit home for me, I think, and um, I think it's probably hitting home for a lot
0: of young people. What's interesting about that is that we talk about challenges on this podcast and we talk about research. And actually, that's a great example of listening to those affected by any particular issue and, and that what you can gain from from those conversations. It sounds fascinating and, and obviously really important. Now, you've got research coming out. Not quite sure when, but this is the time <laughs> to plug. Uh, so you've got some research coming up uh, from the centre.
1: Yeah. So we so the COVID-related research in Reach that I just mentioned, uh, we we hope to have more the, the detailed analyses on that um, out in the next uh, uh, couple of weeks. Um, and we're, we're also at the moment doing some in-depth work with young people. Uh, so we've got around forty young people from um, from Reach who are they've been completing weekly video diaries for us over the kind of autumn and winter period. And we're trying to really now understand the individual variation and the types of experiences that young people are having and also how those things are changing over time. And this, you know, there's so much information in there and the kinds of things that are coming out definitely point towards there's a possibility that things are getting worse over time. It's quite stressful for many young people, but again, a lot of individual variation. So it, we're hoping those analyses will be done in the next kind of two months or so. Yeah. So keep an eye
0: out. Yeah, certainly. And we'll make sure, as always, to include anything in the show notes, as well as links to the Center for Society and Mental Health's website. I should also say we will include links to organizations that can help to anyone that's been affected by the issues we've discussed today. And I should finally say that the Center for Society and Mental Health is such an important and interesting part of King's College London, and it's an important research area. It's obviously mental health is a massive challenge, particularly in developed countries, and understanding the societal impacts as well as the drivers is obviously key. So please do head to their website, check out their social media, their own podcast, as well as some of the work that they're putting out because it's really fascinating. So it just leaves me to say, Dr Gemma Knowles, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Willman, with editing from Rachel Wall.